fun with you all. I think one of the most precious things is just getting to know so many of you individually. You've been very kind and encouraging, but also sharing your own struggles with us as we've tried to share some of our challenges with you. It's my privilege this morning to open the scriptures and focus in on the book of Ruth, if you want to turn there with me. Have you ever been tempted to say to yourself, the Lord has dealt harshly with me? Perhaps you've come to a point in your life where it's just not worked out the way you thought, the way you hoped. Perhaps you're still single and you really expected to be married by now. Or you got married, but it's been a lot harder than you ever expected. Or you got married and you dreamed of having children, but those children never came and you're yearning. You know, give me children or I die and no children. Or you've had the children You tried to raise them as best you could, and now, as they're becoming adults, they've become wayward, and they're breaking your heart. Some of us have experienced disappointment in business, financially. A partner took the business away from you. A boss fired you unjustly after you'd contributed so much to the company. Some of us are going through difficulties with our health. We thought, I hoped at this age I'd be more robust, and yet I can since I'm declining. We, we have many afflictions. Sometimes our afflictions are compounded by the fact that I kind of got myself into this mess. I married unwisely. I invested foolishly. Uh, I made this poor investment. I had the abortion. I went out with a bad boyfriend. Even self-inflicted pain still hurts. Well, the book of Ruth is about a widow. Actually, the main character in the book of Ruth is a woman named Naomi. She's the person who has a crisis, and she's the person, as we see, that the Lord works to bring about a solution. And we're going to focus on the last half of chapter 1, and the context is that Naomi and her husband... Elimelech, in the beginning of the book, there was a famine in their hometown. And she's had a hard life, okay? A famine, near starvation. And so she and her husband made the decision to leave Bethlehem in the land, you know, the house of bread in the land of promise and to go to uh, Moab to sojourn there for a while. But then in Moab, her husband dies. Her sons marry there, but then they die. And as we come to our passage today, is she's now returning 10 years later to her home in Bethlehem. I'll begin reading in verse 19. She's got somebody with her, I should mention, and that's the woman for whom we know the book, Ruth, her daughter-in-law. So when they both went and they came to Bethlehem, and when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned 
and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, Naomi is very, very sad. She's had horrible things happen to her. And I think of my own ministry of counseling. I spend a lot of time with people we would now use the word depressed. I think Naomi is probably depressed. She's like a lot of depressed people where she thinks everything is against her. She is also like a lot of depressed people in that she's telling herself some, she's, she's hopeless. And, and I think she's really lying to herself. She doesn't see the good things that God may be doing. And one way I've actually looked at this passage would be, how would you counsel Naomi? Probably today, there are some Naomi's here. You're going through a really hard time, but there are also probably many of us who know someone like this, where life has gone so hard against them, and they're so sad, they seem to be without hope. What can the Word of God say to encourage them? Now, as we look at this passage, I want to mention briefly kind of my methodology for approaching an Old Testament narrative, an Old Testament story. There are three things I want to do. The first thing I want to do is we want to explain the text and its context, which we've already begun to do. Understand the story, and since they're living under the Old Covenant, their situation is different than ours, and that's going to be important for understanding the story. Just one small example would be when it says in verse 1 of Ruth that there was a famine in the land. Under the Old Covenant, famines were not coincidental. Now, they're not exactly coincidental now, but in the Old Covenant, God had promised in Deuteronomy, if the people were faithful, the rains would come and there would be prosperity. But he also warned that if they were not faithful, what would happen? Famine. So nothing happens by chance. There was a famine in the land under the Old Covenant, most certainly because the Israelites had been faithless to God. And you may realize that these were the days of the judges when these events are taking place. Now, were those the good old days in Israel? No, these were horrible times of much disobedience. And we read in Proverbs 3 just a moment ago that the Lord chastises. He disciplines his sons. And most certainly this famine was an act of discipline. And we'll go on and see some other things there. So first we need to understand what's happening. Second of all is I really appreciate the emphasis of Scott and Brian and others here is we want to see Christ in all the scriptures. In Luke 24, Jesus after he was raised, was with his disciples, and he showed them from all of the Old Testament how these things pointed to him. The Old Testament isn't just a bunch of moral stories telling you how to be a better person. Uh, the, the Old Testament is pointing to redemption in Christ. In the book of Ruth, what, what God does, and I'm going to give the whole thing away right now, okay? Naomi's plight as a widow who is in darkness and despair and I think some unbelief, she is a picture of Israel in the days of the judges. They are in a pathetic position of disobedience and being downtrodden and being beaten down. And God provides deliverance for Naomi. And God is about to provide deliverance for Israel. And who is that deliverer? Does anyone know what the last word in the book of Ruth is? It's the word David. <laughs> and so Israel in these dark days of the judges, God is about to provide for them a deliverer. And of course, it takes one more step, is that humanity is in the condition of Naomi and of Israel, of being barren and hopeless. And all of this points to the fact that through David, through Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, comes Christ the Messiah. And all of that is here for us 
and it makes it very meaningful. But there's a third thing I like to do, I think it's very important to do, I think it's biblical to do, and that is also to make application to our lives today. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.11 says the things written in former times were written for our instruction as examples to us, we upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Second uh, Timothy 3 says that all scriptures God breathed and it equips us for every good work. And so as we study this passage today, and this is a lot of the application will be, is that as we're going through hardship and maybe even messes of our own making, that there is a merciful God who is working for our good. And that here you have what seems to be an obscure and ordinary family in Israel. God is concerned for all of his people. And God is doing good things. And he even uses evil circumstances for our good. So uh, as we see Naomi coming into Bethlehem with Ruth, uh, it's kind of a stirring uh, reentry. And it's, you know, she's been gone for these 10 years. In she walks and the town is buzzing. And she's been gone, we know, for, for quite a while. She thought she was going to sojourn in Moab, would be like, yeah, we'll go for one season, then we'll come back. It's turned out to be such a long time. And the women appear to be shocked at her appearance. Is this Naomi? And this makes me think of, like, you go to your high school reunion, right? And it's your 10-year reunion or your 30-year reunion, and you see somebody from high school, and you say, boy, you look just the same. And then you whisper, boy, the years have not been kind to her. <laughs> and I think Naomi probably, on her face, in her body, she bore the marks of being in a foreign land, suffering through the famine, uh, losing her husband, and then her two sons. Uh, she's haggard. And she even, it's almost like she's, she wants to make the first stop in town to go to the DMV and do a name change. She says, don't call me Naomi. The word Naomi means cheerful. It says, instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. She says, because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Now, it's interesting because in the Bible, usually name changes are an upgrade. Abram, exalted you know, father. Abraham, exalted father of a multitude. Uh, from Jacob to Israel, from Saul to Paul. Naomi is wanting a downgrade in her name change. But if you keep reading the rest of the book, it doesn't stick. At the end of the book, she's Naomi again. Uh, Naomi is like many depressed people. Most depression is due to a sense of loss. And she expresses this in verse 21. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She lost her husband. We see in verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. And then... Uh, on in, in verse 5, then her sons Mahlon and Kilian also died. Not only has she been bereaved three times, uh, it, it meant something to them even more than it would mean to us today. Because for a woman in that time, having a husband, having sons, this is your status in culture. This is everything to you. And it's largely because of the yearning for the family name to continue. And, and for some, the ultimate hope would be that Messiah would come through your family line. But at least, you know, in Israel, you had an inheritance, your land. And it was your, your husband needed to have sons so the sons could take the land and your family's name would continue in Israel. And Naomi's hopelessness is that 
and, and this comes out actually in verse 11 when she says to her daughters-in-law who had married her sons, this is, why should you go back with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they should be your husbands? Is that she sees no possible way that her family name will continue in Israel. Her name, the name of her family, the Limelech and Naomi is going to die out. They'll be forgotten. Somebody else is going to be in their land. Uh, it's over. And that's why she can say, she's essentially saying, I went out of somebody. When I left, I was a woman with a husband and two sons. Now I'm a helpless, hopeless widow. And she's lost all hope in God. Now, all of us have been sad. Sadness is normal when we experience loss. In, in Genesis 23, when Sarah died, it says, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Uh, Dr. Charles Hodges, a biblical counselor and medical doctor, just describes how really almost all of what we call depression is really sadness. Sadness over loss. And it's not abnormal. I think people in our culture almost think I should never feel badly. There's got to be a pill to make me feel better. If you have been widowed in recent months and years, it's normal to feel sad. If you have a child who's turned away to the world or has come out, gone out of your life, it's, it's normal to be sad. If you've lost your job, if, if people have hurt you, if you've been broken up with, sadness is part of the normal human experience. We have a Savior who is a man of sorrows. It's not wrong to grieve. It's not wrong to be sad. It's not weird to be sad. And a pill's not going to solve it. But Naomi, in addition to being very sad over loss, another thing she, she characteristic she shares with many depressed people is she's tempted to be bitter against the Lord. And she actually multiple times kind of speaks against God. She says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, Naomi's kind of an interesting figure because she actually has pretty good theology, right? She, she might even say she's a little bit reformed. She believes in the sovereignty of God. In, in verse 13, she says, The hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And this is actually kind of interesting when you think about it. When bad things happen to unbelievers, it's just bad luck, right? It just things went against me. Other people did stuff. Calamity happened. Hurricanes, whatever. Uh, but when bad things happen to a Christian, because we know that God works all things after the counsel of His will, we have to deal with the hard reality that God, who is sovereign, has allowed this bad thing to happen to me. In Isaiah, it declares, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, creating well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. And so this widow who has suffered from economic loss and the loss of her family members, um, she knows ultimately God has allowed this. And when she says he's against me, and it's interesting that the name that she uses for God is the Almighty, El Shaddai. And that brings out his power. And it's almost like she's saying, here I am, poor little Naomi, and I'm helpless against him. He's big, he's strong, I can do nothing about all the bad things he's doing to me. There's no referee to come stop the fight. Now, one thing that troubles me is I think she fails to see her own sin that may have contributed to these problems. Uh, in the Bible, when there were famines in the book of Genesis and people left the promised land to go be among the pagans, it never turns out well, does it? And the, the 
point is God is disciplining his people. She and her husband try to escape that discipline. So they left the promised land. They left the house of bread to go be among the pagans. And then once they got there, uh, we see that verse 4 of chapter 1, that they took for themselves Moabite women. Well, the law had forbidden Israelites to intermarry with foreigners. That's why you shouldn't leave. And so given that Elimelech was dead, it appears to be that Naomi probably had something to do with that. And so her problems are not all, she's not innocent in my opinion. Uh, She's not the only character in the Bible also who has struggled with bitterness. Jacob in Genesis 42, and this is when he doesn't know about Joseph yet, and there's famine for him as well, and he says, oh, everything is against me. And yet, if you keep reading, God is working out great things for Jacob. He just doesn't realize it yet. We, we need to be careful. Jonah also, oh, I have good reason to be angry even unto death, he says. Uh, we need to be careful in our response to trouble. And actually, the character in the Bible I think Naomi is most like is Job. Uh, rather than just seeing her as this kind of weak, bitter old woman, I think like Job, she's a believer who's absolutely overwhelmed. Job was emptied of his children and his property. And Naomi has been emptied of her children and her prospect of property for the future. Job also realizes that God is ultimately behind his calamity. He says, shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? Job understood that all these horrible things that happened to him were ultimately allowed by God. And Job doesn't get it. Even There's even similar language in the Hebrew. He says, the arrows of the Almighty, same word for God, are within me. They're poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. The Almighty has embittered, same word, my soul. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in the context of the book of Ruth, it's not just about Naomi and her family. The book of Ruth and the days of the judges that... Naomi's plight, Naomi's condition, I think, is very much reflective of the nation of Israel. They are weak in faith. They are being chastened by God. They are empty. They are afflicted. They're surrounded by nations who are mightier than they. They're being beaten down at every turn as you read the book of the Judges. And they are in desperate need of redemption. Yet there's another factor about Naomi that's very important, and that is Naomi is also like many depressed people in that she fails to recognize the goodness of God towards her. And this is scattered throughout the passage. Uh, Depressed people tend to wear these dark glasses and everything is bad. Another way to look at it is they look at their blessings through the wrong end of the telescope and and they shrink down to, to virtually nothing. But there's all kinds of hope. In our passage, you look at verse 6. It said that she heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. And so this famine, which apparently lasted 10 years or more, is over. God has chosen now to bless his people. And again, nothing happens by chance. It's like, uh, and you get to verse 22, and it's the beginning of the barley harvest. It's like you're in this movie where everything's in black and white, and there's minor key, slow music playing. And now it turns to color and there's happy music playing because the harvest has come and good things are happening. In verse 19, it says they came to Bethlehem. You think, what's the big deal there? Well, these were the days of the judges. Do you think it's very safe for two women to travel alone in the day of the judges and to travel a three days journey over 60 miles? God has delivered them safely out of 
the land of paganism into the land of promise. Uh, that didn't always happen in the days of the judges. And then furthermore, as now she's back in the land of the promise, God makes provision for widows. Uh, the psalm says that a father for the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a, a home for the lonely. And really the rest of the book of Ruth is structured around the reality of God's care for widows. And if you want to jump over for just a moment in Deuteronomy 24, in verse 19, the people were told about what we call gleaning. It says, when you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And, and God in the old covenant in his great wisdom had provided a method for feeding widows and that was that when people harvested, if they dropped something, they leave it. They didn't cut the corners of their field. And the widows, the orphans, and the poor could come behind them and get enough food to eat. And that's actually Ruth chapter 2, is that Ruth goes out and gathers the food according to God's law. God, in his nation, provided for widows. And so she's coming back to a place, unlike Moab, where God has made provision for widows. And of course, there's another law of God as you continue in chapter 25. We know Naomi was aware of it. She was just hopeless it could be enacted. And that was beginning in 25.5 when it describes how when a man dies and has no son, that a relative would marry his wife and produce an heir. And, and the idea would be that if, if the relative was to marry the, the widow, then that child would not be the, the man who married the widow, it would be the man who died so that his name would continue. And that's Ruth 3 and 4, where God brings Boaz, who first provides the food through gleaning as a faithful Israelite, and then becomes the husband for Ruth, by which all the problems of Naomi are solved. So she's blind to that. And then she's also blind to the fact that God has given her someone to share her burdens. And in verse 22, she says, I'm sorry, she, she had said earlier, I went out full and I came back empty uh, in verse 21. But then it mentions again that Naomi returned in with her Ruth the Moabitess. And, and I kind of feel sorry for Ruth here, don't you? I mean, here's Ruth standing next to Naomi and says, I've come back alone. And she's over here saying, what about me? <laughs> and... Ruth is going to be part of God's solution to the whole problem. It's not Naomi that goes out and gleans. I don't know if she's so old, tired, or sad that she won't get out and do it, but Ruth is the one through whom the, the law is fulfilled as she goes out and gleans. Then Ruth is going to be the one through whom Naomi's family will be replenished and blessed. Uh, you often depress people. I'm alone. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares for me. And it's just not true. You have family. You have Friends, you have a church body of people God has provided to care for you. And then, even more remarkably than that, Ruth is not just there, God has saved her. And this is the, the section right before this, and it's worth looking at for a moment. That when Naomi was going back to Bethlehem, and, and, and Ruth, and then Orpah was the other daughter-in-law, and verse 11 you know, they're along with her, and then she says to them, return my daughters, why should you go with me? Uh, and, and so she's telling her daughters-in-law to go back to Moab. He says, go back to be among your people and be among your gods, and maybe you'll find a husband there. And Orpah finally goes back. 
And then Ruth stays in verse 14. Ruth clung to her and she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. I'm going to give you a paraphrase of verse 15 that would be a little shocking. But I think it's worth a little bit of a shock. Essentially, Naomi is telling Ruth to go to hell. Go back to Moab where the false gods and the pagan worship is. Maybe you'll find a husband there. Because God won't take care of you in, in Israel. That's horrible. Like she's the worst evangelist in history, don't you think? Um, and yet Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. Now, most of you were. That's not, I mean, people read it in weddings. You can maybe apply, but this is the context. And Ruth, and we, as we keep reading, we'll see that Ruth has chosen to find shelter under the wings of the God of Israel. And that's actually part of the beauty of the book of Ruth is God is showing his care even for Gentiles, even those outside of the old covenant who would seek him and find care under him. And what an amazing thing after such a, a horrible evangelistic effort on Naomi's part. I actually had something happen to me that reminded me of this when I was in high school. There was this guy, uh, 1974, 75, wanted to be my friend. And I was a fairly new Christian. I was really serious. And I basically told the guy, if you want to be my friend, you've got to become a Christian. I don't have time to hang out with non-Christians. God saved the guy. He's still my friend. He still has the Bible I gave him in 1974, 75. And he ended up marrying one of Caroline's bridesmaids. Um, and we're all friends now. It's you know, in spite of me. It's amazing. But what a blessing. God has used her mediocre testimony to bring salvation. And then just the fact of the reality is God is good. And he is faithful even we are faithless. And I've been reading actually this week in my daily Bible reading in Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, it's another time of spiritual famine and disaster for the people of God. But God says to them, for you know, I know the plans I, that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Now the context of that is the Babylonians are wiping you out and you're being sent into exile for a long time. But God is determined to bless his people because his blessing is based not upon their faithfulness, but his. And this is what's going to happen as we continue in, in the book of Ruth, is that in spite of Naomi's unbelief, bitterness, even speaking against God, when you get to chapter 4, verse 17, hopeless Naomi, it's going to say, you know, when Ruth gets married, I assume you know the rest of the story, and Ruth marries Boaz, and Ruth has a baby. Um, you have this beautiful picture of Naomi who was so bitter Verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor women came, gave him a name and said, a son has been born to Naomi. Not to Ruth, not to Boaz, but to Naomi. They named him Bo Obed, and he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. That in spite of her, of the bad things that happened circumstantially, in spite of her own sin, and sinful response to trouble. God is still determined. Uh, all along, God knows Naomi's going to be holding a baby. 
and her family's going to have a glorious future. And she doesn't know it, and she's not trusting him. And then again, it's the same for the days. In the days of the judges, I'm pretty sure there'll be lots of Israelites who say, the Lord has dealt bitterly with us. The Philistines beat up on us, and when they're done, the next country comes along and beats up on us. Here we are, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, civil war taking place. How could God's covenant be true? But God is raising up a king who's going to make Israel great again. Raising a king will make them greater than they've ever been and will ever be. Uh, in, in the Old Testament. And, and God is bringing redemption to an unworthy people because he's determined to fulfill his covenant. And then as you look at humanity in general, God is working a plan of redemption for humanity. That we are like Naomi. We are like Israel was in the Old Covenant. We are unworthy. But God is determined to bring redemption to his people. And through David, and you read in the New Testament how you know, through David and you work through the genealogy, it's a son of David who comes as the kinsman redeemer for all of God's people to bring redemption on the cross, to bring us salvation by his grace that we receive through faith. And, and Boaz paid one price to redeem Ruth and Naomi, but Christ has paid that great price for us. God, in spite of all the bad things that are going on, is working out a great plan for his people. And we can so easily lose sight of that. And again, it's a lovely picture of Ruth standing there as a picture of the Gentiles who would be grafted in, who is taking refuge under the wings of Israel. So, uh, here's the question now, coming back. We've gone through the story, and we've seen something of how it points to Christ. But here's kind of where the rubber meets the road for some of us. That is, how would you counsel your Naomi's or yourself? One thing I would say would be, we should have compassion. And actually, I... When I originally went through this, I had a particular guy in mind, a guy named Rob. He had been severely depressed for two years. He was sad. One reason is he had worked very hard in a company. He'd built it up. He had a very responsible job. And his boss let him go. And he still, two years later, is very much embittered about that. And he just can't get a job nearly as good. He's very frustrated by that. He is constantly grumpy around the house. Everything's bad. Everything's awful. He's been a leader in his church. He's still trying to do things, but he's just kind of slogging along there. He also has regrets about the past. He, he's now in his 40s. He looks back when he was in his 20s, and he felt like God was calling him to ministry, and he felt like it was a call he did not heed. He feels like as he went on, he got married, got a job, all the stuff you have to do to take care of a family. He feels like on the highway of life, he got off at the wrong exit, and there's no way to get back on the right road. He is full of sadness and, and loss. And you know, what do you say to a guy like that? How do you help his wife help him? Well, one thing would be is that when we read a story like Naomi or we hear a story like Rob, and some of you have stories that probably are worse than Rob's, uh, it begins that we should have compassion for people who are suffering. Romans 12 says, weep with those who weep. Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. I think part of that is his compassion for what death has done to humanity, including people he loved very dearly. Um, the proverb says in Proverbs 18, 14, the spirit of a man can endure his sickness, but it's for a broken spirit who can bear it. There are people here today who have a broken spirit, and there, there's not, it's not a physical pain necessarily. But it's hard to live life when the whole world seems like it's in black and white and all food tastes like paste. And the, the joys of life just aren't there for you anymore. 
And, and we should have compassion. We shouldn't just say, well, stop it, shape up, get better. You just trust Jesus and rejoice. Uh, that is, you know, to sing us, the proverb talks about the inappropriateness of singing songs to a sad heart. Um, we need to have compassion and we need to care. Pure and unfiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress. Uh, to come alongside the lonely, the sad, to be their friends, to spend time with them, to pray with them, to read the scriptures with them if they'll allow you to do so. And then if you're having this struggle, you need to watch out for the temptation that, to which Naomi was succumbing, and that is be careful not to be embittered against God. Um, we as Christians can sometimes use the language of faith like she was doing and yet be walking in unbelief. In Psalm 73, the psalmist in that psalm was tempted to be embittered because of the prosperity of the wicked. And he says, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. And we need to be careful not to choose the path of bitterness. Job says, I lay my hand on my mouth. And I can speak personally. I've shared in Sunday school the greatest trial Carolyn and I've had is with unbelieving young adult sons. And just to be careful how I speak to God and how I think about those things and to trust Him. You might ask, well, why do people get depressed? And as I said, I think probably most depression people experience is like Naomi. It's just over loss. In Psalm 42 in 43, which are kind of psalms of, about depression. In Psalm 88, you can see there, like the psalmist is remembering better days. He's separated from the people of God and the things of God, and he's, he's sad over his loss, and it's a struggle for him. Some people are depressed over guilt, over sin. Psalm 32, David, after he committed adultery and murder, he said, night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My my body wasted away as with the fever heat of summer. And he says, it was only when I confessed my sin to you and you forgave the guilt of my sin that uh, some of those depressed feelings were lifted. There may be some people who have things going along with their bodies. And there's some people actually, they'd say, well, I, I'm not, I don't feel like I've lost a lot. I'm, I'm, there's not some horrible sin. I'm not angry at the prosperity of the wicked. But I just feel sad all the time. And there are some cases, I think they're relatively rare, where there's what you would call undefined depression. And there may be something going along physically in your body that may be contributing to that, and you're perfectly welcome to see a doctor over that. But I would encourage you to consider a couple of things. One is spiritual issues will never be addressed or solved by medicine. When medicine works, it relieves symptoms, but it never addresses causes. And the research is showing that for people with mild to moderate depression, medicine is almost completely ineffective. For people who are extremely severely depressed, medicine can help deal with those symptoms. And again, it's, it's a matter of Christian freedom. Uh, but you say, well, how do I help a person who is depressed? And going back to Rob, a passage which was much in my mind, and one thing I guess that we associate sometimes, some depressed people despair even of life. We don't see that specifically in Naomi. She's hopeless. But their depression is often connected to suicide as well. And John 8, 44, Jesus talks about, you know, he accuses the Jews, you of your father, the devil. And two characteristics of the devil is that he is a liar and that he is a murderer. And I think the devil destroys life with lies. 
And I think a, a great problem for depressed people is they're believing lies. They're believing lies about God. They're believing lies about their circumstances. And they are believing lies, or they're not believing the promises of God. And what a depressed person needs is to be reminded of who God really is, of who He is in Christ. He is, needs to be reminded of the promises of God, which are, are faithful and true. He needs to remember, I think this can be a great help, a couple of things very practically that can be helpful for depressed people, is to, to realize, to, to look back in the past, and to remember God's past faithfulness to them. And I'll often talk to people this way. You know, have you had financial troubles before? Yes, I have. Tell me how God helped you in the past. Or have you gone through these seasons of feeling this way in the past? Well, well yes, I have. And, and did God bring you out of it? And you know, the lie of Satan is this is the way you feel. This is the way you're always going to feel. It's never going to get better. Um, that is a lie. And it's a deadly lie. It can be a deadly lie. In the Psalms, when, when things are tough for the Israelites, they will look back and remember the past goodness and faithfulness of God. Uh, he, the psalmist says in Psalm 78, he wrought miracles before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the land of Zoan. And, and this is actually a theme in many of the Psalms. It's like times are really tough now. We don't see an easy way out of it, but God delivered us out of Egypt a long time ago. He can do it again. And then recalling the promises of God. And so you can remember biblical examples, but also just to remember personal examples of when God has helped you, God has delivered you, God has been faithful to you. Um, to recognize the present manifestations of God's goodness in your life. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a uh, famous book of sermons on depression. He called it Spiritual Depression. And the most famous phrase from that book, it's when he's in Psalm 42. And expounding that psalm, he says, we need to stop listening to ourselves and we need to start talking to ourselves. And, and what he was getting at is if you just let your mind go on autopilot, the lies of Satan will just multiply in your head. And what you need is the truth of the word of God to counteract that. He actually goes through Psalm 42 and shows how the psalmist is tempted to listen to himself and he's tempted to despair, but then three times, it actually is in Psalm 42, and it continues into Psalm 43. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And then he says, hope in God. And so he, he counteracts his despair with truth. And another profound thing in Psalm 42 and 43, there are three cycles of this. Uh, there, there are some things in life where if you just think or do the right thing, it gets better right away. Depression, Ed Welsh called it a stubborn darkness. I think it's significant in Psalm 42 and 43, the psalmist three times tells himself the right thing. He talks to himself three times, but the first time didn't solve it. The second time didn't solve it. By the third time, he's getting it right. There's not a, three different solutions. It's one solution. Hope in God, hope in God, hope in God. And yet he has to keep telling himself that over and over again because his, his mind keeps tempting him to go back to despair. And I think one thing we need to sympathize with people who are struggling with depression is sometimes it lifts very slowly. It doesn't always just go away right away. Um, it's a battle. So recognize, force yourself. I've done this myself. Write a list of why you should be thankful to God. Because it's not just popping in your mind naturally. Now you're lying in bed and your problem is rolling over in your mind. You can picture Naomi trying to sleep and thinking, what are we going to eat? And you know, what's going to happen to our land when I'm dead? And my life has been so hard. Forcing Naomi to recognize every good gift comes from above. And that, of course, just the promises and the hope that God gives.
And then you should have gotten this card. And this, this card, actually, the primary offer this, author of this card is Rob, about whom I spoke, my counselee. That as I would talk to Rob, I would see, and this is actually true in so much of counseling and in needing to counsel ourselves as well, is that Satan is a liar. And our fleshly minds keep spitting out lie after lie after lie, which would drag us down and down and down. And, and we need to answer the lies with the truth of the Word of God. And this is not just for depression. I could do this with anxiety, you name it. But just for Rob, um, I had him actually as an assignment write down a list of the lies you keep telling yourself. And then Rob had been a leader in his church. He knew the Bible was. And I want you to write down for every one of those lies you keep telling yourself, truth from the Word of God that answers those lies. And this list is basically his list. Uh, the lie he's listening to, God is against me. That's just like Naomi, right? The Almighty, His hand is against me. Well, the Bible says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He would not spare His own Son. He would not give us with Him all things. God is for me. He's proven it by giving Christ for me. Oh, my situation is hopeless, just like Naomi. There's no future for me. No, God offers me hope. He is the God of hope. He does have a good plan for his people, even Romans 8.28. I am among those who love God and have been called by him, and I can trust him for that. I am all alone. Nobody with me. Nobody cares about me. Well, Jesus... Well, in Hebrews 13, the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God will never leave us. Romans 8 says how death, life, angels, principalities, famine, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is ours in Christ Jesus. Oh, but I just can't live without whatever. You know, I can't live without my girlfriend, my boyfriend, having a child, having kids who walk with God. Well, the Bible says God is all I need. Jeremiah 17 it says, cursed, in verse 5, cursed is the one who trusts in man and makes the flesh his strength. He's going to be like the bush in the desert. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by rivers of water, that, uh, whose leaf does not wither, who yields fruit in its season. Even in the year of drought, his leaf does not wither. That it's, it's in relation to God. God is what I need, not whatever I've lost. It's not denying losses. Loss is really hard. But God alone is sufficient for me. I've ruined my life by my sin. Well, God forgives. God restores. When David says, after all the horrible things he did, he says, when I confessed the guilt of my sin to you, you forgave me the guilt of my sin. You are my hiding place, he's able to say. 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, my life is so unfair. That's back to Psalm 2. The wicked are prospering, Psalm 73. Well, no, God is just. And even in Psalm 33, what was the solution? It says, then I saw their end. I came into the temple of God. I came into the presence of God and I saw that in the end, God will be just. God is a long-term God with his plan. In the long term, the Moabites, the Philistines, the, the, those who are his enemies will be wiped out. In the long term, his unworthy people will be exalted along with Christ. Um, 
His justice will prevail, but it will not necessarily be on our timetable. God doesn't care about me, poor me. Well, again, he so loved the world that he gave his son for you that uh, his love for you is proven in a thousand ways. You need to remember who he is and what an amazing thing. He says he's adopted you as his son, his daughter, and has made you an heir. I'm no good. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) The scripture says that we have a righteousness not of my own, obtained by keeping the law, but the righteousness which comes from God by faith. My goodness is not in my accomplishments, my obedience. My goodness, my righteousness is a right. I'm, I'm, I'm a person who's a great, the chief of sinners, who's been granted forgiveness and righteousness in Christ. And in that I can find joy. So there's a struggle. We can go through times in life when we're tempted to think God is against us. Life can take one bitter turn after another, and and sometimes these seasons come totally unexpected. We're we're all vulnerable to this. We will all experience loss, and ultimately it's the gospel that proves that God is for us. Just a passage or two to conclude. In Colossians 1, verse 13. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, we may think we're afflicted, but the most afflicted person ever to live is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The one person who lived who did not deserve to be afflicted was afflicted for you if you believed in Him. And it would also follow that if if the person God most loves was afflicted according to God having a good purpose in that, which is our salvation, God may also see fit to afflict you. It'll always be less than him, and it'll always be for his good purpose. And we can trust that God is in control. We don't always understand. Sometimes God is teaching us, chastening us. But ultimately, as we walk by faith and not by sight, again, there's an amazing happy ending in the book of Ruth. That if Naomi would have known it was coming, she would have been fine. But you know it's coming. Christ will return. All things will be made right. We will experience the the benefits of being in his kingdom, to go to the place he's prepared for us. And so now we live by faith in hope. If you have never yet turned to Jesus Christ, I want to give you an invitation today. You may not even realize it, but your situation is even worse than Naomi's. It's a horrible thing to be cut off from God, to be apart from His promises. You need a Redeemer because you have sin. And one day you will die and you will face God. And in our guilt, we all deserve to be punished for our sin. But God has sent a Redeemer for us in our desperate need, and that is Jesus Christ, the son of Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, David, the Son of God has come into the world. God the Son went to the cross, and he made redemption, not just by buying a field like Boaz did, but by dying on the cross, paying for the guilt of all those who would believe in him, and then making us rich, and actually making the church his bride, like uh, Boaz did for Ruth. And he would invite you today, turn from your sin, 
Believe on him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We all need a redeemer, every bit as much as Naomi did. And God has provided a great redeemer who has given us a great salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word points us to Christ on every page. We thank you for a great redemption we've received in him. We also thank you that the word is very practical. And I pray today for some here who may be sad, who may feel hopeless. Lord, give them the hope of the gospel. Help them to see the good things you're already doing for us, the promises you've made for us. Help them to find hope and to trust in your word, to to think of you as you really are, to believe the truth and to put away the lies. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.